Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. All right. Thank you all for being here. Uh, hello and welcome to the Commonwealth Club. My name is DJ Patil. I'm a general partner at Great Point Ventures and a member of the Commonwealth Club Board of Governors. Uh, the club would like to thank the Bernard Osher Foundation for supporting tonight's Good Lit event. It is now my pleasure to introduce tonight's guest, known as the creator of, of ImageNet, a catalyst for modern, modern uh, in artificial intelligence. Dr. Fei-Fei Li has spent more than two decades at the forefront of the field. I really think of her as putting not just one cornerstone down of modern AI. She has put down multiple cornerstones of, of uh, AI, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that. She's also an inaugural Sequoia professor in the computer science department at Stanford University and co-director and founder of the Stanford's Human-Centered AI Institute. Fei-Fei uh, is also the co-founder and chairperson of the national nonprofit AI for All, aimed at increasing inclusion and diversity in AI education. Fei-Fei has published more than 300 scientific articles and is the author of a new book, which you hopefully have all got, or if not, you can get out just outside the door here, uh, of The Worlds I See, Curiosity, Exploration, and the Discovery at the Dawn of AI. So, Fei-Fei, thank you for being here. Thank and you, most of all, congratulations. Thank you. This is, is, is an incredible book. Let me start with, if we were to visit ourselves back when we were a kid and said, two immigrants like us are going to be up on stage talking about AI. Would that have been possible? No, we, we wouldn't even know what AI was. We wouldn't but... know what AI was. And, and so just a testament of how much you've achieved is, is that we are talking so much about AI and the impact it's having on the world. But I think we should take a step back and kind of get to where you got your start, because it's a phenomenal journey that you outline in the book itself. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about your your upbringing. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Actually, DJ, I want to share with a very small story about this book. I didn't write the book the way it turned out to be. Um, I was invited to write a book about AI for popular audience, and I it was COVID. I spent a year writing a very nerdy book. And it was my friend, a philosopher, um, a professor who read my draft after that year I finished and who said, you have to go back and rewrite. I was like horrified to hear that. Um, and his, his wife is an author. And he said, that's why my wife never showed me her draft. <laughs> but then he said, look, Feifei, there are people who can talk about technical AI and I know you can and you should, but for all those immigrants out there, young women out there, people of all walks of life out there, in today's AI, they don't find a voice they can identify with. And he he convinced me that um, that uh, I my voice represents a very very um, important sector of our you know of our uh, community, and that's how I ended up writing a a double helix science memoir in the sense of. One thread is a coming of age of a scientist, an immigrant. The other thread is the coming of age of AI, and of course, our intertwined history. 
So um, from that point of view, we were talking a little bit in the backstage, uh, DJ, you and me. This book is this journey I have taken is now unique. We have so many immigrants, so many people of all kinds of origin in this country who have, um, you know, who have come through, done things, great things, contributed to this country, to this uh, society. And I hope that even in AI, which is a deeply, deeply technical Silicon Valley, you know, field, we allow room for that voice. Well said. Well said. Well, tell us a little bit about your story, because I think it gives a lot of insight to how you approach the problems of AI. Right. Um well, I still hope you read the book, but <laughs> but I, I came here with my parents when I was 15, and of all places, we landed in Persephone, New Jersey. I'm not so sure anyone here would have heard of that town. It's a very small town in Persephone um, in, in early 1990s, but very serendipitously, about 30 miles away from that little town, there was AT&T Bell Labs and uh, and already computer scientists were making the first generation of neural network. As I just landed in Persephone, New Jersey, started learning uh, English, went into the public high school, and uh, I was passionate about physics. It really was my biggest passion. And um, we should talk about a very special person, but before that, in Persephone High School, before that, I'll just go over the broad stroke, I, I ended up with a scholarship in Princeton. And um, and then uh, in the middle of that, I we had to support our, our family. I, my parents don't, still don't speak English. And I ended up um, in Silicon Valley language. I had my first startup, which is a dry cleaner shop <laughs> with literally some angels who fund helped me. <laughs> and uh, and I ran the dry cleaner shop for seven years uh, throughout my undergrad as well as my PhD, which was Caltech. So there was some remote uh, work before Zoom. And uh, and then uh, I uh, switched from physics to AI because um, I found that the audacious question of intelligence, what intelligence is, how to make intelligent machines, captivated me um, towards the end of my undergrad. And I thought that's just my life's calling as a scientist. And that's how I began my journey in, uh, in PhD time. But, you know, even as, um, and this comes out a bit in the book, which you all really should read, is you were a non-traditional student even in China. The works you were reading, what you were doing, how you were approaching learning. And what is it that really, where did that love and passion for learning come from? And the reason I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to foreshadow this is because you're helping teach computers how to learn. That's true. So where did yours start? You know, maybe at the end of the day, it's the difference between humans and machines, because where I start is from love, whereas computers don't necessarily start there. They Say more. So because love? Um, if you read my book, there was my parents who supported me, and they they loved me in a way that was unconventional. They let a little girl be as curious and as unique as she wanted to be. 
And my dad, which the book talked about, also is a I'm sure you get you you met these kind of people in your life. Is a just an innately curious person. He he loves insects. He loves animals. He loves nature, and his love of those things were infectious. And I kind of become his little sidekick, and uh, and um, just embraced nature when I was a kid, and and found my own path. I was a little nerdier than him, I guess. So I I found my path in the books a little more than just bugs. And um, but it's um, it's the space they gave me out of their love for me. It it was in that educational system. It's Pretty tight education system, but yet my parents, with all their strength, created a space for me and、uh, let me be free in that space. It's not a huge space, but it's a very precious space for a young kid, especially a young girl in in that kind of、uh, environment, and, and that's where it began. But I think you were alluding to one of the people you were talking about is is your math teacher. Uh, could you talk? Tell us about him. Yeah. So, if this book is partially dedicated to a very special person, the reason he's so special is he's your everyday American public high school teacher. He's not unique in that sense. His name is Bob Sabella, and he was my. First math teacher at Persepolis High School because he was the head of math department and I had to take placement test. I didn't speak English, so he had to deal with the troubled ESL kid. And eventually, he became my calculus teacher. But in the meantime, he was the most generous, compassionate, and also tough love teacher. He kind of. Recognized my challenge as a as a、um, ESL English as second language student. He recognized my loneliness. He recognized I needed help, and he 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 really just took me under his wings. And one thing led to to another. We became friends, and、uh, we talk about math, but we also talk about literature and science fiction, sci-fi, which he he loves. And he took me to his home, and his wife, also a high school math teacher, just embraced me, and they became my American family. They become my first encounter to the very core value of what this country means to me. Here in Silicon Valley, where many of us also are educated from the other coast, we're like coastal people. We We look at America means shiny things. It means startups. It means you know big skyscrapers in the、uh, in the Manhattan. But for me, America means、um, public high school math teacher who had the most fundamental value of generosity, of、um, kindness, and of integrity, and that is that really. Mr. Bob Sabella and his family became my American family. I they stayed with me throughout my course of my study and career. They they were one of the angels who helped me to、uh, um, even purchase the dry cleaner shop. And、uh, you know he stayed with me throughout college, throughout graduate school. Unfortunately, he passed away when I actually was became a Stanford、uh, assistant professor. But I stayed very close to、uh, with 
with his family, and I'm so grateful that I have I have Mr. Bob Sabella in my life. And I think many of us in America have a Mr. Sabella in our life, and I want to use this book to celebrate them. And to do we have any teachers here? We do. Thank you for being a teacher. You know, it's it's amazing because you talk also about that the this teacher. And, and this is sort of theme through the book, how people put challenges in front of you. And, and you have this almost audacity to say, that's, that, that's not good enough. DJ, I think that word is delusion. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm going to go with audacity because it, it is like, and, and I, think, I think this is a good place to talk about ImageNet. Because uh, and so I'll ask you to tell us a little bit about it, about uh, how it, uh, how we got to how you got to the idea of ImageNet. But this is, I mean, the scope and magnitude of where you started with and what you decided to get to. I mean, there's audacious and there's there's uh, Fefe audacious. <laughs> so maybe you could take us through a little bit of that journey. Yeah. Well, actually, I do like that word, not about me, but about that's what physics captured me, is the audacity to dare to ask the most fundamental question of our nature, where beginning of space-time or smallest particle of the universe and end of the, the boundary of the universe, these are crazy, crazy questions that's so audacious. And then eventually it led me to the most audacious question in my mind, which is what is intelligence and can we make machines think? So by the time I finished graduate school, we were smack in the middle of AI winter, right? The public doesn't know about much about what this is, but we are starting to, this is, end of my grad school is 2005, 2006. So we, we entered a very interesting age that machine learning as a mathematical tool is already being introduced to the field of AI. We also are at the beginning of the internet age. And I was a assistant professor working on one of the most mind-boggling question in computer uh, in AI, which is make computers see, see as humans see. Humans don't see, DJ, you sit here, I don't see a black blob <laughs> or, or, you know, um, a cylindrical shape. I see a person, I see your expression, I see you were drinking water, you're holding a pen and all that. So we see the world with so much richness and um, meaning. And we don't know how to make computers do that. And I wanted to create this computer that can see all the object in the world. But in the meantime, my field at that time, the standard practice is take a data set of four different objects and just work on it. And um, I was also fortunate enough to have a uh, education, um, to have my PhD that was interdisciplinary. I did some neuroscience, cognitive science to be inspired by human um, human intelligence. And we know humans are really capable of seeing meaning, seeing richness in the world. And they also see a lot as a kid. You, you grow up just experiencing this world. And I think that was the audacious, delusional idea that I had with my students around 2006, 2007, which is why don't we map out the whole world of visual richness and 
give it to the computer and train it with the vast amount of data. 2006, we're talking still, you know, we didn't have really much cloud infrastructure no. to be able to, to even get enough hard disks and memory to store that much visual imagery. Yes, that, actually, that was precisely some of the pushback when I talked about this idea. They're like, we don't even have hard drive to contain, you know, what you're trying to do. And, but I guess we believed in it. I went to the biggest, um, um, lexicon taxonomy dictionary. It's called WordNet and took tens of thousands of visual categories from WordNet. What's an example of a category to help? Uh, a German Shepherd is a category. A, uh, a um, Siamese cat is a category. A microwave is a category. Um, a sedan is a category. So you have 10,000 of these. 22,000. 22,000. 22, and then we went to the internet. We downloaded billion images uh, lots of cat photos. Lots of cat. But the internet also has dogs. <laughs> so so um, we, we took billions of images and we decided to curate, which means to clean them and sort them and label them. That was really, truly kind of crazy. Um, in hindsight, I don't know what I was thinking because I, <laughs> I thought I would be hiring undergrads to do this. And um, the Princeton undergrads were just not that great, I guess. <laughs> they, they refused to do it. And uh, around 2007, serendipitously, um, a student, at, I was a, a faculty at Princeton, a student who moved from Silicon Valley, from Stanford to Princeton said, in Silicon Valley, this is such a great story of Silicon Valley, there is a startup, I heard they're using this platform called Amazon Mechanical Turk. And and then that day when I went to check what Amazon Mechanical Turk was, it turned out to be an online market of workers trying to do digital tasks. You put little digital tasks there, and there are you know millions of workers. And then you kind of agree. You you say, well, I put up a task, and I'll pay ten dollars. If I'm a worker online, if I like that task and I like your pay, I sign up. So it's kind of a marketplace. I, I check that out and I realized my t a billion images that I don't know who is going to clean and sort for me have found a marketplace. So we set it up this whole Amazon Mechanical Turk system. We took three years, long story short, and eventually we curated ImageNet dataset in 2009, the largest data set in AI at that time. It's also the first real big data. It's the first time big data entered AI and forced, um, forced the field to think with big data. And then we open sourced it. We created an image that challenge. We, but before you get to the challenge, uh -huh. I think it's important to note what was the perspective of people from, from academia? When you, you, you finally are like, behold, ImageNet, what happens? Uh, silence. <laughs> there wasn't much why, why fanfare. Think, why don't you think they got it? I think it was ahead of its time because, uh, you know, to, to approach AI with big data was not a concept. Now with ChatGPT and all this, everybody said, duh, of course. 
But it wasn't like that. Uh, you know, there were mathematical models people were paying attention to. These are very elegant models, but they were not thinking from a data-centric point of view. And, uh, and you know, it has to wait for the right opportunity. I was lucky. I mean, there are many bets in the history of science that, that were ahead of their time, and maybe they didn't wait long enough or something happened. And, and But I was lucky to be alive, I guess, when this idea started to, you know, to, to um, take fruition. And we put out this challenge in 2012, um, a professor in Canada, Professor Jeff Hinton, with two very smart students. One is called Alex Khrushchevsky. The other one is called Ilya Soskiver. been in the news recently. Yeah. And they saw ImageNet, and they also saw there is this thing called GPU. They took two GPUs because CPUs, graphics, a graphic processing unit made by NVIDIA. It is better at parallel processing than CPUs, which is the classic Intel chip chip that most of us were using around 2012. And... Uh, they programmed that two GPUs with image that data with a classic algorithm that has been around. Remember, I said Persephone. I landed in Persephone while they were developing your network thirty miles away, and in the nineties, and the convergence of these three elements was what people call the the beginning of deep learning revolution. Well, maybe. Um... What, you know, like one of the things that sort of strikes me is like at that same time, we were on the data side of the community going, oh my gosh, how did she put this data set together? This is going to unlock magic. You know, this is from the LinkedIn side. And so you really uh, were able to empower an unbelievable army of people to try algorithms, to test, to compete. I'm curious, you know, as you were watching these groups work, was it, how, how much hand-to-hand -hand combat was it? Was there a lot of collaboration going on? What was the nature of the dynamics in the community? And the reason I ask that is we look at today's AI and we see this flat-out race, but I get the sense from your book, it was very different. It was very different. It was the time where AI was very academic. I I feel I grew up in the golden era of AI because it was so academic. It was so friendly. You know, of course, people have opinions like they didn't think image that was a thing and it's their opinion. But we collaborate, we share, we open source, we, you know, um, I was visiting MIT all the time and Berkeley and, you know, it's just Stanford, Caltech. It was a very different era, but it also is an era that AI didn't work, right? So nobody cared <laughs> about AI. So, so there were no VCs knocking on the door. There's no VCs, and also DJ, I want to say it, that era of AI. I think women flourished mm. as a young woman computer scientist. I think I actually benefited from a, a period of AI where power and money didn't come in yet. Interesting. Here, here. Well, let's talk a little bit about some of the 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 other aspects because you took a, you've taken which ImageNet and then you saw these breakthroughs. You were able to start putting t together, you know, really creative data, uh, um, PhD students that typically weren't getting attention anywhere else. 
um, some of the very popular names today, the well-known names uh, of people in the field. But you also decided to take on different areas, including healthcare. And one of the lines that I think you you really which stood out to me is the theme in particular is dignity. And uh, it strikes me because also woven through this book is a story of your mother and very serious chronic uh, health conditions. So I'd love to tease that out a little bit about, about how you see dignity, how you see this relationship with people in this space, because there's so much... Uh, it's just such a rich narrative that you provided. Yeah, and also a shout out to you, DJ. You're one of the forefront uh, thinkers and leaders in uh, digital health in our country, right? So this is something we can talk a lot about. <laughs> yeah, so um, you're right. So I have always been a basic scientist, basic science scientist, which is we focus on the fundamental science. But around the time of 2000, I feel like it was right around ImageNet breakthrough, so 2012, 2013, if you live in the Silicon Valley, there is another hot topic, and that's self-driving cars. And I just became Stanford's um, um, director of Stanford AI Lab. It's a very historical AI Lab, and I was the only woman and the first woman um, um, director there. And I was in the middle of, you know, talking to different companies at that time, now interested in self-driving car and all that. And then we're starting to look at that technical problem of high stake, human lives, very complex visual data, and decision making. And in the meantime, I live a parallel life of going to ER, going to operation room, calling ambulance, home caring, case managing, because because I'm the only caretaker for, for my for my parents, especially my mom. And then it really dawned on me that the problem of self-driving car and healthcare, especially care delivery, how to take care of the patient, has a lot of commonality. It's high stake because human lives and health, it's complex because the behavior of patients are very complex. The behavior of caretakers are very complex. And also it needs help because in America, you know this better than me, we have labor shortage for caretakers. We have nurse shortage and we have even bigger shortage for caretakers for elderlies. So I started to think there is a possibility to use computer vision as you know a technology to help taking care of patients and elderlies. Can I just interrupt you for a quick yeah. second? Because I think you, th this is what makes you unique, as you said, to help take care of, not replace. And, yeah, and you, right. you talk a little bit about this. So could you tell us a little bit about why you also have that ethos? We, need, we absolutely need to replace the verb replace and uh, to replace it with augment and enhance. Absolutely. I, I want to tell one story that I did write in the book. And uh, I think, uh, DJ, you say you like that story. Um, so, so what, long story short, I got a group of clinicians and researchers, medical researchers, especially Professor Arnie Milstein, and I start collaborating on this. In the meantime, my mom went into a major surgery, and then I started taking care of her in ICU and then in the in the patient room. And the doctor, after major surgery, the doctor ordered her to use spirometer 
to expand her lung because that's very important for her as a cardio patient. You know, once as soon as the doctor made that order, me, Feifei, the daughter, the computer science, I'm very intense. I put her on a schedule. I'm like, okay, the doctor said every hour you have to do this. And I was on a mission to make my mom, you know, not sick, not have pneumonia. I was just like in that workaholic mode. And after a day, my mom just completely broke down and gave up. She like rebelled. She's like, I don't care. I'm not going to do spirometer, blah, 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 blah. I was very traumatized. I felt like I was traumatized. And I was like, I'm trying to help. And this is important, blah, blah, blah. I, I just don't understand. And then several weeks passed. We were back home recovering. I asked my mom, I said, why did you f fight with me on that spirometer? Because I was trying to help you. You know, I know you were like half have medicated, but I was clear-minded. I know how to help you. And then she said, you know what? You are controlling me. I don't have my dignity and self-respect. It was probably one of the most profound conversations, even though it was like one sentence in my entire life as a technologist. I realized if I were to make AI before that conversation, I would make a copy of Feifei. I would make AI to work with that schedule to remind her. It would just be like that. Whereas humans are much more complex. The dignity, how we create a relationship with the help, whether it's through another human or through technology, is much more nuanced, much more profound. No matter what happens, it's the self-respect and dignity that's at the center of our humanity. And technology, technology's role is to enhance and augment and respect that dignity and humanity, not to take it away. And I think that was... Um, Early, that was like 2016, I don't remember exactly the year. And I think that episode, of course, there's many other episodes, really informed me as a technologist of how to think about the relationship between technology and, and people. This is why I focus on saying tools are here to help, not to replace. Well, let's, well said. <laughs> Let's talk, let's take an extension of that work because you not only started a nonprofit, but you also started this new institute at Stanford uh, to really insert humanity and also help the underserved. So maybe let's first start with AI for All and tell us about that and hold some space for, for what the mission is there. AFL is a national profit. Um, my former student, Olga Zukovsky, and colleague Rick Summer from Stanford started in 2015 as a summer program to welcome diverse high school students to come to university campuses to spend uh, two or three weeks to learn about AI. But we focus on uh, inclusions, especially a, a, a serving community that has been traditionally underserved uh, by technology. And we also focus on uh, infusing that uh, human mission into technology education. And that started in 2015. Well, actually, the preparation started in 2014 because 
I was noticing that the podcast, the airwave of even then, was filled with people like you know Bill Gates, Elon Musk talking about AI being so dangerous, summoning the demon. The, the, the even Stephen Hawkins was talking about this, like it's terminators are coming, it's a crisis. And then I was living in a different crisis that nobody talks about. I was at that time the only female faculty in um, Stanford AI lab. We have what less than fifteen percent women graduate student. We have barely any students of you know African American background in in our graduate pro program. And I was like, these two crises. One is just so sci-fi. The other one is so real. Is there any connection? And and I I think somewhere in 2014 I made that connection. Is that if you are truly worried about AI's future, you should worry about who is making AI today. Uh, thank you. And once I made that connection, I talked to my uh, graduate student at that time, Olga, and my friend Rick. And we're like, we got to do something. We need to look at the pipeline. We need to work with K-12 students. And that's how we started this AI for All um, nonprofit uh, organization. We started the, the first couple of years was just Stanford and then Berkeley joined and, and all that. And Melinda Gates and Jensen Huang family office supported our initial launch. And uh, it's, it's, it's still going. Honestly, I wish it could grow faster. What, what would help it grow faster? What would take it? Because we're seeing the transformation of every student wants to use ChatGPT to write their essays, yet this is the actual program for builders. What would it take to make sure that we have this type of technology built by the communities that might be impacted the most? You want the real answer? <laughs> It's I think they do for sure. <laughs> it's money. We need. It's a nonprofit. We we need um, we need support. Yeah, it's a money question. As a nonprofit, it is a money question. So, but that's a long story. So, uh, but it it is there. We're still trying very hard. So we're not giving up. Good. I'm glad you are. No. Um, if people want to find out more about it, how do they find it? AIFall.org. Yeah. Right. And maybe talk, talk to us a little bit about why start a new institute at Stanford? Yeah, so so we talked about ImageNet and then the AI deep learning revolution happened. And then fast forward to 2017, I was a professor. that At that time, I was a professor for like 12 years. And in academia, you can take sabbatical, right? So I was very lucky to be invited by multiple companies and Google uh, called me and they want me to be chief scientist of Google Cloud. What really captured my um, attention for th this opportunity is cloud serves all businesses from healthcare to financial services, to agriculture, to energy, to you know entertainment, media, retail, whatever. So I felt as a academic, it would be a good opportunity for me to go into the real world and learn about the impact of my technology and also to try to learn how to deliver that in products and services. So I went to Google and it was like amazing, right? You, I, several things shocked me. First is Stanford is a pretty privileged place, yet 
going to Google, I realized the scale of this technology making, you know. Coffee bars. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and the free food. Um, but the scale was just amazing. The, num the, the amount of computes the Google researchers can use, the, the kind of software engineering infrastructure. I mean, you talk about this in the book of yeah. how many GPUs you had this basically scrounge dollars for, and then you snap a finger, yeah. and how many you can get it. I, I think I, in, the, in the book I was talking about 800. 800 right? versus... Yeah, for, uh, this is yeah. pre-transformer, pre-GPT technology, right? So anyway, so, um, so that was one thing that shocked me, um, and it really illuminated me. Another thing that illuminated me and also inspired me was AI's reach, you know, we were literally talking to developers like a Japanese cucumber farmer using computer vision to help his uh, business all the way to Fortune 5 companies, you know, trying to optimize supply chain and customer experience and, and everything in between. And it was, it dawned on me that this technology that I participated in creating used to be a private curiosity for me. It's just me and my AI because nobody else cared. Now it's the whole world is using it and there is a responsibility for those of us who created it. And that started to dawn on me. And in the meantime, 2017 and 2018 is the first wave of tech clash, I'm sure, a lot of you remember this is right at the heel of Cambridge Analytica, the 2016 election. I'm sure you have a strong memory of DJ. <laughs> and uh, and uh, the first time we have self-driving car injuries and death, the first time we see bias system, especially facial recognition bias, the first time we got into... Criminal justice bail calculators, assessors, being <laughs> fundamentally racist. Exactly. And we also see the first intense debate of AI and weaponization. And all this taught me one thing, that AI is messy. AI as a technology social impact is messy. AI as a math is not messy. Math, math is one plus one equals two. But as a technology, it's messy. And we are, we are the people who are going to usher the humanity, human race into this new era. What is our responsibility? And that's where I really decided, as much as I love Google, I love the experience, I appreciate it, I have a responsibility to return to the public sector to create a new framework of creating AI and governing AI, and that is the human-centered AI framework. And with the support of Stanford, um, leadership, I returned to Stanford after my sabbatical and created the, the first human-centered AI institute in the world, I guess. Yes. It, well, we've had a number of really good questions. Uh, our, our great staff here at the Commonwealth Club are collecting questions. Keep bringing them in. Uh, a number of the questions, let's shift gears into today and where we're going. And maybe the place to start is we're seeing... You know, you can't turn on the radio or open a web browser without hearing some news about AI, the most recent one being everything that's happened at OpenAI most recently. And there, there's a question of doomers versus techno-optimists. 
where do you stand in the spectrum and how should we as how how should we be thinking about it yeah um i actually recommend a public uh, discussion i had with jeff hinton a month ago in toronto it's on youtube um ai is too nuanced and too complex to go binary and uh, as all technologies uh, technologies you know, humanity, human civilization is a history of tool making. And we've always created more and more powerful tools. And we've always always have had a complex relationship with tools. And AI is going to kick this into another gear. So um, it is intellectually a fair question to talk about, is AI conscious? Is it sentient? As a, as a scholar who lives on a university campus, no question is wrong. We, we should ask this. But that is juxtapositioned with much more real social risks that I call them catastrophic social risks, such as disinformation and democracy, job change, uh, weaponization, bias, uh, um, copyright, intellectual property, privacy infringement. These are such real issues that I would worry if we shift all of our attention and, and fill our airwaves with the most extreme doomers conversation, we are actually missing the critical conversation and action towards these really important, pressing, urgent social risks. In the meantime, as a scientist, who created, uh, participating, creating AI, I see its opportunity in healthcare, in medicine, in scientific discovery, in uh, climate uh, solutions, in, in many things. So I also see amazing opportunity, education. But I don't think we can only say it is only good. There's nothing bad. So you can hear, I'm, I'm, I'm just not going to give you black and white extreme answers, because I think the real work and the real discussion and real thinking is the messy middle. How do you, you know, one of the questions, th these are fantastic questions. I think you have enough for your next book here. Uh, um, so kudos to, to GPT the GPT will write my next book. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, one of the, the, the questions that's in here is how do people get up to speed stay on top of things, be engaged either because they're, you know, they may not be technical, some may be technical. What's your advice for people on how they can le best learn about these complex subjects and then uh, have a voice? Yeah, first of all, I think we start with you have to believe you have a voice, especially you're in a democratic society. And as a citizen, as a member of a community, and as an expert in your own field, you have a voice. And this is a tool. Our relationship with this tool is that we need to learn how to use it, or we need to learn what this is. In terms of how to get to know the, the today's technical AI, there are actually a lot of resources. If you are technically 
you know, you have a technical background, then there is a lot of papers to read. There's a lot of, you know, even on the internet, whether it's YouTube or, or, or other social media, you've got a lot of people who are communicating this and digesting the latest papers. It's a little overwhelming, but if you do have a tech background, there are resources. If you don't have a tech background, there are actually also good resources. For example, if you subscribe to Stanford uh, HAI's newsletter, we put a lot of brain. How, how do they find it? Um, HAI.stanford.edu. You can scroll down. There is subscribe. You know, just just go subscribe because we we have a lot of public seminars. We have a lot of uh, um, briefings for policymakers, for industry uh, decision makers, and and all that. And uh, there are also you know courses that you can take from Coursera and 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 all that. So the materials are out there. It is, I'm not going to lie, it's a bit overwhelming. But if you have the will to learn, depending on where your expertise, um, come, your angle is, uh, it's actually a very, uh, there is a lot of access point, especially where we are. I, I worry about global access, for example, our global south, if our students want to learn there, I think we have a bigger issue. But in this community, there's a lot of materials. Well, let's take this to the national and international stage. What what are you telling the president? I um so I met him right and uh, in June. I mean you were, it's it's very notable you were one of the featured people to to up to to educate President Biden on this. So I told President Biden um, that this technology is so important that we should adapt it. Moonshot mentality in resourcing public sector AI. And let me thank you. Let me explain. Um, America's leadership in our technology and also in 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 actually a, a more well-rounded leadership in the world has always stemmed from a fairly, it's not perfect, fairly healthy ecosystem of innovation. Uh, entrepreneurship, um, industry, and and with the government playing, when it's done right, playing a positive role in resourcing this. But right now, we are so imbalanced. Not a single university in America can train a chat GPT model. I, I used to wonder if all universities' GPU combined can train a chat GPT model. Recently, I heard there are some universities on the East Coast who are starting to buy more GPUs, so I'm, I'm very envious of them. But anyway, but... but the, it's kind of, there's an irony that you're only so many miles from the headquarters. Yeah, the don't even get me started. <laughs> yeah, we... Um, yeah, and, and speaking of alumni, um, <laughs> so you, you give your lectures in there, yes. in, in the hall named after them. Yeah, but um, um, so so why do we need public sector? There are two very important reasons. First of all, public sector creates public goods. Scientific dis scientific discovery is public good. We can use AI to cure from cancer to rare diseases, to discover new materials, to to um, 
accelerate fusion research to map out the whole world's biodiversity to create climate solutions. These are all public goods, and they happen in public sector. If we're depriving public sector from this tool, this critical tool, we're depriving our humanity, our, our, our species, from knowing this knowledge and having this innovation. So that's one reason. The second reason is public sector serves as a trusted source to explain and to evaluate and to assess what this technology is, right? So Stanford's HAI, my institute, was the first one and the only one who is evaluating the large language models created by multiple companies. We just put out a work of evaluating the large language model against European Union's um, uh, AI Act uh, suggested transparency uh, measure. And, but the public tends to trust what the, the public sector does. Now, if we don't resource public sector well, we're not going to be able to know what this technology is. We're not going to be able to look under the hood and also to co-develop this important technology. So for these two reasons, it is so important we resource public sector and we, we um, especially encourage sub uh, public sector to work on uh, safe AI, ethical AI, and uh, AI for, for, for many, many uh, disciplines. How should we think about it internationally? Because, you know, uh, there is this abject conflict that is taking place economically with China. There's real security questions with uh, countries like Russia and Iran using AI. And, and you were also at Google while the whole debate around Project Maven took place. And uh, I am curious through your eyes, how do you see about the international complexity? Yeah, so the truth is, look, DJ, this is why I say it's messy, right? Technology is messy. Tools are messy. Human world is messy. And I'm not going to pretend I know the answer of all of this. One of the great things about being a wonderful university like Stanford is that we have experts. In fact, HAI as a technology institute, we deeply, deeply collaborate. We collaborate with the Hoover Institute. We collaborate with the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies. And we collaborate with CEPR, uh, which is our economic policy institute, because we've got a tech, um, policy thinkers, political scientists, economists to to help us to to uh, uh, to grapple this together. And we also, I believe in partnership. First of all, as a as a academic institute, we believe in partnership with you know many communities, including the government and governments of the world. We have been especially close with the EU and Australian and, and those governments that have a shared um, value system. And we think that's very, very important. And we also play a role. I feel one of my role I can play in my leadership position is to create create the bridge to help our deep policy experts, political scientists to be educated about the technology, and then they can apply their expertise to, to go advise the governments or, 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 or do. Do you think they get it? Because recently you ran actually, well, I can say it because it's publicly reported, you ran a boot camp yeah. for Congress. 
you know, we've seen some of the commentary out of Congress. Oh, you, well, you talk to them. What, you what's know it like? The government better than me, DJ. Um, I actually think they have changed for the better because our institute was established in 2019, and the first trip I took was Washington D.C. And people don't understand what I was talking about. Like they can barely spell AI, and not we. We were. We actually, um, we actually work with Trump administration, and there were some experts in this. Yeah, so you might know even know some of them, um, but by and large, they even bipartisan, they didn't pay attention. Well, this past year, the amount of attention and from the, the the DC world is is phenomenal. Now, I do wish they find more experts. They do talk to people of. Pri uh, public sector as well of one category yeah <laughs> and also right i mean and i say this with all seriousness because we just saw this some of you may have seen this also this weekend there was a big uh uh news story about the people times. the new york times who said these are the fundamental people who have driven uh ai and if i just may call it it was all white men and ignored most of the historical people that you talk about also in your book, who mentored you, helped you, and you were part of their journey. They ignored you as well. And so this gets to a question also of, we have a singular, we almost have a rewritten chat GPT hallucinated version of AI history going on right now? Yes, I, I think we do need to call this out. I think, I don't know how many of you saw, I know you did, that New York Times article, and it was 100% men. And some of them, while they might be business leaders or investors, were not central to the creation of AI at all. So, you know, um, I don't know, should we send three letters to New York Times? <laughs> It, it, it is. I, I do think we need to call them out. This is unacceptable. There are so many women of, and, and also even men they didn't mention who have made fundamental contribution and they just completely ignored it. And it's just unacceptable. I agree. Uh, one of the questions that we've got in here is from a number of students who are here. Uh, and one of the things that they ask is, maybe to start with this is, you know, Tying this back to your book, you really pay, as we talked about earlier, uh, unbelievable tributes to your mentors and your students. So maybe in putting this in a couple questions together, what advice do you have for people who are in need of mentorship or could be mentors and to make sure that they're lifting everyone up? How can high school students get hands-on experience? What opportunities are for them? And also another one was, you know, what do you advise people who are graduating from high school, going into college, should they be thinking about? Be nice to your teachers. No, just kidding. <laughs> if there's one theme I was writing this book with, it's the theme of North Stars. It's, um, I, of course, I found my North Star in AI, and I don't think everybody needs to find their North Star in AI, but I think the the true human story of my journey and my mentor's journey, my student's journey is you be fearless, be courageous, and be passionate and 
be curious and find the North Star. And they might change in different stages of life, but no matter what stage you are in, whether you're mentoring someone or being mentored or thinking about your major in college, I really encourage you to find that North Star that、uh, makes you feel curious and passionate and and filled with a sense of mission. And I think that is just a Wonderful thing to have. It's a beautiful feeling, and it makes you most creative. And and frankly, you know, you don't feel tired if you are working on something you're excited about. What about for people who are in positions here who could be mentors? What have you seen that works really well for people who are in positions of power or privilege? So. That's my role for many years now as a mentor, and as I work with students, I the the thing that keep I keep learning over and over again is how do we help them to find their north star? It's not about us; it's about the people we mentor. And the best way to mentor is to learn who the the students are, who the young people are, what they want, and maybe sometimes they it just takes a mentor to. Help them to see their north star. Sometimes it's、uh, young people are not necessarily seeing what they, they, their their calling is. And if a mentor can play that role, at least for me, that's just so satisfactory and uh, and uh, rewarding. Great.、Um, several people asked about the role of quantum computers and the impact it may have on AI. Well, that's a great question.、Um, I don't know. I, I I don't think I I know enough, and I don't think we know enough about where quantum computing is going yet. It's still very very early. If the if quantum computing in the way that we hope it is succeeds, it'll unlock the kind of computational power that、um, today's computers don't don't have. And since AI is a deeply deeply computational. Field it's driven by big data, big compute. There might be a a a a shift in how AI is done, but right now, just at least in my limited knowledge,、uh, it, it it's not material yet. You know. Okay.、Um, you barely sleep as it is. What keeps you up at night? That New York Times article. <laughs> Are you worried about AGI? That's a great question. It would I would not say I'm not worried. I think I'm already worried about AI. As I said, I'm already worried about the catastrophic、uh, social risks. I'm worried about 2024. I'm worried about、um, you know the creator economy that is being disrupted by AI right now. I'm worried about、um, the shifting of. Economy. I, I, there's one thing I want to double click on. That I do believe AI is a great tool to increase the total productivity. I see that opportunity so clearly. But increase of productivity doesn't mean there is a fair distribution of prosperity. And we have seen that in globalization, and we might be seeing this in AI. So it's not enough to just talk about productivity increase. We have to also talk about prosperity, prosperity distribution, and that's a huge topic in the age of AI. We should be thinking about from policy point of view as well as from、uh, just social science point of view. So all these. 
do keep me up at night. So that that's why I'm excited to work in human-centered AI. Um, I'm not yet staying up at night thinking about the the the, the doomers doomsday scenario. Yeah, um, it, it's interesting because when we were uh, when you were talking earlier about you know when Bill Gates and uh, and others were talking about the doomsday scenario, and we were tasked by President Obama to come up with a national uh, strategy yeah. for AI. That's how we met. First, that's how we first met. And one of the things that I think we we tried to put together and we got, I think, a, a lot right, but also a fair amount of wrong of which jobs are going to be replaced or, or displaced is probably a more accurate uh, 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 phrasing. So what, as you look forward over the next five years, where is the biggest impact happen? Yeah, well, I think the impact, we have to define it. If it's really on jobs, I think we're seeing knowledge workers, right? Even software engineering being impacted. And then... Because before we thought it was going to be truck drivers and right. um, short cooks and other right. very manual labor. But we, yeah. we messed up on dexterity. It's hard to replace. Yeah, exactly. Um <laughs> There's actually more than dexterity. We also don't have a good world model. We have a good language model, and this is getting to the technical topics, right? So, so, but yeah, so given we have a breakthrough in language models, I think, you know, knowledge work, especially um, the way, again, talking about productivity, how do we make software engineering more productive? How do we um, service uh, customers better? How do we search better, recommend things better. Of course, everything I said has both good and bad, right? Um, and uh, But I think there is going to be a lot of impact. The, the large language model technology is not a hype. It really can have deep, deep, profound uh, industry uh, uh, impact. Do you let your kids use it? I do, actually. How so? Okay, this is a question I get a lot, and I, I actually want to talk about it, is educators do ask me, especially K-12, so my kids are in that age, is that um, should kids use this? And my answer is yes, but there is a but, right? Like, first of all, look, this is a tool. We created it. It's that the genie is not going to go back to the bottle, and this is a generation that will be embracing a world with this tool already created. But I think what we should do is let them embrace it by learning to use it responsibly, by, you know, learning to use it so that they can enhance and augment their own agency, their own creativity, their own productivity, not to use it as a crutch that let them lose their agency. And how to dial that knob is the, the, the task of an educator and then also in collaboration with all of us. But I, I do think this is a great tool for, for even K-12 learning. Well, we're, we're almost coming up on time, which is always hard to believe how fast it flies here. Uh, one last question. What's the best piece of professional advice that you've received? Who was it from? And how do you translate that for today's people going forward? I guess I'm going to go back to um, my high school math teacher, Bob Sabella. I don't think he actually said, here is a piece of advice I'm giving you. He he just embodied it, which is paying forward. You know, he, he had nothing to expect of me. Uh, I was this 
kid who didn't know what's going on, and his kindness, his compassion, his generosity, and also his integrity. He was a tough teacher, um, and uh, um, created a helped me to see a future. Created a helped me to pave a path, and that you know is a way of paying forward. And I, over and over again, I think about what I have. Had the privilege to benefit from all the support of not only him but my mentors and、um, my supporters, and I want to pay forward.、Um, this is why I'm doing what I'm doing, and I think、uh, it's just a great thing to do for for everybody. I think that's a great note to end on, which is love and the the, the passion that you bring to this. Fei Fei, I want to personally thank you for being such a north star to the community around AI. And all the energy and effort you do to keep us headed towards that north star. So thank you, Dr. Fei Fei Li. Please join me in thanking her. <laughs> Fei Fei is the author of "Worlds I Can See: Curiosity, Exploration, and Discovery at the Dawn of AI." I encourage you to pick up a copy of Dr. Li's book here、uh, outside or at your local bookstore. And if you'd like to support the club's efforts. In making a virtual and in-person programming possible, please visit our website at www.commonwealthclub.org. I'm DJ Patil. Thank you for being here, and we'll see you next time. Thank you, Fei Fei. Thank you, DJ. Thank you, everyone. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to CommonwealthClub.org/donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.